Hello, I am Keith Masterman, Vice President of CI's Tax, Retirement, and Estate Planning Group. Each year, we offer a presentation on the court cases of greatest relevance to your practice. Today, I'm going to speak with you about one of those cases from the Ontario court that added complexity to registered beneficiary designations. In Quebec, a RIF or RRSP beneficiary designation is generally not allowed to be made in the plan document, but are made in a will. My discussions today will therefore only apply to beneficiary designations in the common law provinces. In the common law provinces, property can be held jointly between two or more people, either as tenants in common, where each party holds a fixed interest and on death that interest does not transfer to the other owner, but passes to the deceased estate, or as a joint tenancy, where the property automatically passes to the surviving owner upon death. Kalmuski, the case we're going to discuss today, deals with the second situation, joint tenancy. The facts of Kalmuski are straightforward. Henry Kalmuski died in 2016 at the age of 94. He was predeceased by his wife Mary and his son Daniel. Henry was survived by two children, his twin sons Randy and Gary. At the time of Henry's death, Gary lived with Henry in Henry's home. Gary had moved in with his father for financial reasons in order to assist with Mary's care prior to her death. Randy lived in Alberta, where he had moved in the 1980s. Henry's assets included bank accounts at Bank of Montreal and TD Canada Trust, with a combined balance of about $280,000, and a RIF held at TD Canada Trust with a balance of about $41,000. Shortly after Mary's death, Henry made Gary the joint account holder of his two bank accounts and designated Gary as the beneficiary under the RIF. In Henry's will, Randy and Gary were named as co-executors. The residual beneficiaries were Henry's nephew and Henry's grandson. In other words, neither son inherited under the will, but Gary, as beneficiary of the RIF and as joint account holders of those two bank accounts, would inherit about $321,000. Following Henry's death, Bank of Montreal and TD Canada Trust paid out the proceeds of the joint account and the RIF to Gary. Randy commenced a legal action arguing that both the joint held, jointly held bank accounts and the RIF were held in trust by Gary for Henry's estate. Randy was relying on the doctrine as set out in 2007 by the Supreme Court of Canada in Pecor versus Pecor, where assets held in joint name between spouses are presumed to be intended as a gift for the survivor, called the presumption of advancement. But assets held in joint name with an adult child are presumed held in trust and must be administered as part of the estate of the original owner. This is called the presumption of trust. Two things to remember about these presumptions. The presumptions only apply where the actual intention of the deceased is not known. And secondly, these are presumptions and can be rebutted through evidence, but the burden is on the party who alleges the presumption should not apply and not on the party trying to uphold the presumption. The court determined that Gary was holding both the bank accounts and the RIF proceeds in trust to be distributed as part of Henry's estate. In reaching the court, in reaching the conclusion, the court said several things of interest. From an investment advisor perspective, the court held that the presumption of resulting trust applied to registered accounts. This seems to have caught the industry by surprise, which in and of itself is a bit of a surprise, as Ontario is the fifth province to consider the question. British Columbia, Alberta, and Manitoba courts have all said the PCOR doctrine applies to registered beneficiary designations. In fact, Alberta went one step further and held the presumption of trust applies to insurance designations. The other provinces did not opine on insurance designations. Saskatchewan is the odd man out and held the doctrine does not apply to registered products. 
From an evidentiary perspective, the court held that Gary did not meet the burden to rebut the presumption of trust. The court said the bank documents which contained verbiage stating the assets were to pass to the named beneficiary were insufficient and should not be seen as evidence of an understanding or an intention respecting the presumptions. And secondly, the evidence of the financial advisor was not persuasive. The case was not appealed and therefore would appear to represent the state of the current law. Where does this leave us? Well, from an advisor point of view, it emphasizes the need to keep detailed records of your discussions. Financial advisors and their notes are often the only evidence to establish that the deceased was free of undue influence, duress, as well as establish his or her intention. And therefore, the notes and testimony of the advisor are often crucial evidence at trial. From an investor perspective, clients should leave evidence of intention, either by way of a formal trust deed or at the very minimum, a written notation. If today's podcast was of interest and you would like to hear of other 2020 court cases relevant to financial advisors, please contact your CI sales team. Thank you very much. This podcast is provided as a general source of information and should not be considered personal, legal, accounting, tax, or investment advice, or construed as an endorsement or recommendation of any entity or security discussed. Investors should seek the advice of professionals prior to implementing any changes to their investment.